This is an ABC podcast. I came across Scott. Uh, he was a very senior executive that had enjoyed a fantastic rise through his career. He flew up the hierarchy. He was running a group of about 1,800 people and two other groups of roughly similar size. And everybody talked about it as if he was the next heir apparent for the CEO spot. So what really, really stunned me the day that I was with the CEO and was walking into the boardroom, he pulled me aside going into the boardroom and said, you know, I'd like you to look at Scott's network specifically because we're about to have to remove it. It was just a shocker, you know, for a second because you heard nothing but glowing things about him. And then the CEO was saying the same thing. He said, everything we can see from the outside, he's doing right. You know, he came in, he took layers out of the hierarchy and the groups that he's a part of super heavy servant-based mindset to leadership. There's nobody that kind of jumped in and wanted the best for his employees and jumped in to help directly. But he was also experiencing his engagement scores and his groups plummeting. His peers were grumbling about him for not coming through. And so we used the analytics to really see how and where Scott had allowed collaborative overload to creep around him. That's Rob Cross, Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College in the U.S., Today, we're looking at what happens when we get ourselves caught up in a cycle of over-collaboration, how it can damage our work and home life. And if Scott's story sounds a little bit familiar to you, don't worry. We'll be looking at ways to break the cycle and deal with de-energising work colleagues. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. Welcome to This Working Life. So, Rob, why do we over-collaborate? Great question. I mean, part of it is just the nature of work today. You know, we've been through all these restructurings that's taken hierarchy out of the network. Most organizations have adopted, you know, six, seven, eight different kinds of technology that enable them to collaborate you know, more seamlessly, more instantaneously. And just the nature of work itself has become more collaborative. And what that means is that we're enmeshed in interactions that consume 85% of our week, you know, on the phone, on email, in meetings that um, leads us to a lot of times both burning out and, and sometimes struggling from an innovation standpoint because of this always on a work context, right? So part of it's organizationally driven. I would say 50% that the organizations are placing demands on people. And then as our work unfolded, we could see about 50% of it is us and how we tend to approach the work that leads us to jump into collaboration, sometimes that are not necessarily the best things that we should be doing. So can you go deeper on the 50% of it being us? Yeah, that was one of my biggest surprises. I was completely convinced that collaborative overload was external, right? It was emails, time zones, nasty bosses, demanding clients. And as I came out of all these interviews, what I could see is we all have these triggers that lead us to jump in when we shouldn't, you know, and that boils down to getting a sense of uh, status by driving interactions back to us or people that just like to help like Scott. And oddly enough, in all our work, when we see these very overwhelmed people in networks, the knee-jerk reaction for most people is to say, gosh, they're too controlling. They're micromanaging. And that really is only about 5% of the population. It's, it's these other ways where we jump in because we like accomplishment or we you know, have FOMO that tend to catch us in many more profound ways than we think about sometimes. And I'm really interested in the term servant leadership, which is seen as a badge of honour, but you're saying it could turn against you. Yeah, it's not so much the idea. It's a lot of times how it's done. You know, so for example, with Scott, he would jump into these email threads and see things, you know, evolving with groups in his organization. 
And he wouldn't jump in and say, go do this. He would just jump in and say, have you all thought about this? And it was a way of just showing he was present. He just wanted his team to know he was there. But just that slight insertion suddenly meant that the team was managing the issue and him. And he would end up with more emails and other things on his plate. So the trick is to be very careful about helping in a way that builds capability and not too great a reliance on yourself today. When you're talking about the deeper need to either help or to gain a little bit of a buzz from being the person that everyone turns to, so how would we possibly even become aware of these things that are driving us and even change it? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, for me, I can say personally, it's the desire for accomplishment, right? If I see a a five-minute window in my day, I try to jam 60 minutes of stuff in it and completely (laughs) ignore the two to three hours of email and meetings and other things I should be doing to bring everybody along. And I get six weeks in and and I go, why won't these people do this, right? Why am I, you know, starting to get this done? And it took me a long time to realize that I started the thing to begin with by trying to, you know, just jump in and, and make something that needed to happen get done. And that's what I see in all of this. These triggers are a lot deeper than we realize. It's conditioned in us to want to show up for our colleagues in certain ways today. And the crazy thing about collaborative overload is that it feels good right up until it doesn't, right? Because you're satisfying these needs. So you feel like you're in the thick of things. You're hitting things that, that matter to you right up until you hit these you know, last thresholds of demand and a significant other says no more, you lose an employee or whatever, and it starts a downward spiral. So what are some strategies that we can use to either prevent this from happening or even spotting it, Rob, which I think is the trick? I think the things that I would hear a lot about is people having, number one, incredibly great clarity on how and what they wanted to be doing with their lives. Here's the the three or four capabilities I want to be deploying in my work in the coming uh, four to five years, right? And here's the values I want to be experiencing. Like, is it mentoring? Is it innovation? Is it creativity? But they were really precise on what it was that fulfilled them at work uh, and outside of work through life roles. And that helped them in those small moments to kind of step back and say, okay, is my time better spent here or is it letting this unfold without me and lean them in these other directions as an example? So that's where that idea of saying yes means saying no really gets teeth. It's when you're thinking about I am just about, I haven't even been asked, but I'm about to jump in and help in this situation. And you pause and say, well, wait a minute, it's going to take me away from this. I'll tell you, for me, because I love accomplishment, I love to get stuff done. I made a deal with my wife, my ever-suffering wife, that I wouldn't take anything else on until we talked about it. (laughs) And just the fear of that conversation alone is enough to kind of get me to go, maybe not, maybe it's not so important. And your phrase over collaboration feels good until it doesn't. Tell us what you've seen in your research about the dangers with over collaboration. There's multiple levels you know, to that answer. When we use our organizational analytics, that when people fall into these points of uh, over connectivity and over collaboration, they're more likely to burn out and leave organizations today. And so that's a problem because you end up um, losing not just the talent, but some of the most connected people. Right. So it's both the talent and the capability uh, that walks out the door. We also find that the people that are relying on those people um, tend to be, in some cases, up to 200% more likely to leave because they can't get the time of the individual, the engagement of that individual. 
So there's really significant effects organizationally on innovation, engagement, retention, you know, things like that. On a personal level, it's similar, right? It's it's individual burnout. You start to work yourself into ways of working that you become less innovative and less likely to produce bigger and bigger outcomes over time. And it's also just a killer on our well-being. The thing that's, you know, driving everybody crazy kind of before the pandemic and going through it is the increase in both the volume and the, the diversity of the collaborative demands places a kind of stress on us that we've never experienced as humans before, right? It's not these big moments. It's the, the hundreds of small moments that accrue through a day is a, you know, really big deal from a, a well-being standpoint. And so what would we do with this freed up time, Rob? rather than cramming more into the small amount of time that we free up. Right. We've seen through the pandemic, people were busy pre-pandemic and they had, you know, days that were packed with meetings and they were complaining about eight one-hour meetings, right, <laughs> through a day. And then somebody through the pandemic had this great idea, of, let's try to jam shorter meetings in. And so now everybody's got 16, 30-minute meetings that they're complaining about. And we're exhausted, right? You're more intense in the meetings. You're switching across the meetings more. It's cognitively draining. And you end the day with a to-do list uh, based on 16 meetings, not eight, right? And it's no wonder we're working deeper into the uh, night and earlier into the morning. What we could see with the more successful people is they didn't buy this time back to then go have and do the same things faster, right? They were far more intentional in seeding networks and exploring interactions with others. So just this one simple example, they spent about 20 to 25% more time exploring possibilities with people from other parts of the organization, right? How could we be working together? What if we integrated what we did? And then when opportunities came along, those people would be able to produce a far greater solution than people that just hunkered down. That's Rob Cross, Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and we're looking at collaboration fatigue. Christine Porath is Professor of Management at Georgetown University. Now, Christine, your research is also about workplace interactions and, in particular, microaggressions. What do you mean by that? We study how rudeness or disrespect or insensitive behaviour affects people. It's all in the eyes of the beholder, which makes it really tricky. But what we're really looking at is when someone feels mistreated in a way that makes them feel less respected. Have you got a specific example for us to bring it to life? Sure. Certainly in you know meetings, for example, there's a tendency if someone feels like they were judged or their project was judged, their presentation was judged harshly and they were belittled for their performance. Uh, when people feel mocked uh, for whether it's their political stance these days or their stance regarding any variety of political issues, that's another one that comes to mind. Even things as minor as texting while someone's speaking to you. Some people may feel like that's really disrespectful. Others may think it's no big deal. You know, I've got a lot of fires to fight and things to do, and I'm just constantly required to be on and checking my email, for example, or checking my text. So I don't mean to slight you in any way, and uh, you shouldn't feel that way. Mm, But you probably wouldn't do that to someone you respected. 
Probably not. And certainly not if you wanted to make them feel valued. I think, you know, one of the things that we're constantly looking for these days is feeling valued, feeling recognized, feeling like people are paying attention to us. So just the idea of, are you listening attentively to someone when they're speaking, I think is huge. And there's been some interesting research done with phones. And even if there's a phone in between the two of us, if we're sitting at a coffee shop or something like that, it's distracting to both of us. And in the case of a stranger, I think less of you because your phone's on the table. You know, and I'm judging you as a result of that. Christine, I've just put my phone away. <laughs> What about workplace de-energizers? So people who seem to zap your energy or you just feel like you've been drained after a conversation with them. Can we go into that? Sure. We had a team that had data on how energizing or de-energizing it was to work with certain peers. And what happened was that we saw that those that de-energized us, so these were not people that were intentionally disrespectful or rude. These were just people that you don't really want to work with. They kind of suck the life out of you. You know, you dread coming to work or working with them uh, as a result of being around them. And oftentimes we end up leaving the organization because of these de-energizers. What happens if you're unknowingly that person? Yeah, well, this ties to the idea of self-awareness, I think, which is a huge issue uh, around this. And Tasha Yurik has done some great work on this, but 95% of people believe they're self-aware, whereas she's found only 10 to 15% actually are. And that was actually one of my biggest learnings uh, over the course of a couple of decades studying this. I started out thinking, you know, gosh, there are some real jerks in the workplace and we need to correct this. And where I've landed is, I think a lot of it, the vast majority stems from a lack of self-awareness. You know, we don't intend to be that person that drains people or that hurts people or pulls them down, makes them feel small, but we're doing things that are making them feel not a part of a team or not valued. So I think the key here is to gather feedback about how you're really perceived. And that can be as simple as asking peers, both certainly at work, but you can also ask family and friends for feedback on your best and worst behaviors. I see teams have really valuable discussions around this. So those are a few things. And then the other thing would be, you know, tied to the idea of just taking care of ourselves. The number one reason why people are rude, and we asked this, was because of stress or feeling overwhelmed. And so I think, you know, it's not easy to do, but if we're really mindful of prioritizing how we feel, and that can be, you know, things like exercising, um, you know, being out in nature, it can be, you know, giving ourselves the recovery uh, that Rob mentioned and the idea of sleeping even and uh, those kind of things that can be really helpful to putting ourselves in the best position possible and being as mindful as we can be in all of our interactions with others. So in terms of uh, receiving microaggression, what sort of strategies can you suggest around how to deal with that? Well, I think part of it is removing yourself from the situation. So, uh, you know, if possible, not working on teams where there's a real de-energizer, if you have any choice, you know, pre-pandemic, a lot of this was, do you have the flexibility to work from home, for example, or spend time away or from those certain de-energizers or folks that are disrespectful. 
uh, are there ways to kind of inoculate yourself from their effects on you? Even working through others, like if they have an assistant or something like that can be useful. But I think, you know, a big part of the strategy has been taking care of yourself outside of the workplace and making sure that you're feeling as good as possible so that you bring a stronger, more resilient self into these situations so that they don't pull us off track and they don't hijack our performance. They don't overwhelm us in terms of adding undue stress to how we're feeling. I was just thinking about the person who is the microaggressor. Is there any way of changing that behavior by raising their awareness of it? Or do you think, you know, that's actually not going to go down very well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the tough thing is it really depends on the person. And uh, I think always it's helpful for them to get the information, whether it comes from you and whether it comes in the moment, I think really depends. So it may be that their boss speaks to them or that you take it up in a one-on-one setting and you're exchanging feedback. So I think that the tricky thing is, do you feel safe enough to have the conversation? Because so often we find that about two-thirds of the time, these kind of rude incidents come from people that have more power or status than us in the organization. And so people feel threatened career-wise to take that up with them. And also, sadly, people feel a sense of fear um, or hopelessness that the organization will do anything about it. You know, by reporting it, am I taking a risk? And they're not going to act anyway. And so I think it really matters that we have, you know, good role models that and values in our organizations that say like, this isn't okay, you know, and that will protect you. And ideally that we're even comfortable calling each other out on this. Like I love Tim Scott's idea of radical candor. And if you can build a culture where that is the norm, I think that is extremely helpful in providing feedback to one another so that we catch ourselves. And so we're almost coaching each other. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and today's discussion is all about combating team and collaboration fatigue. So, Rob, anything emerge for you while listening to Christine? Oh, absolutely, on a couple of different levels. One, uh, for me, that I've been studying around the well-being side uh, most recently, and this in the relational drivers, the things we're doing in connections with others that either positively or negatively impact us, really boils down, I think, to small moments as well. So I like the micro idea. I've been terming this other idea around micro stresses and how stress kind of comes at us through small touch points and relationships that none of them seem large, right? It's sensing misalignment with a colleague. It's seeing a team member on Zoom that needs to be coached for the third time. It's getting a text from a child that you can't tell if it's a big deal or something there over in 10 seconds and you worry about for three hours. But today we're, we're getting hit with a whole lot of those and it accumulates. But the interesting thing to me is you can do things that make them visible and think about how do you shape those interactions? Because the negative impact often can absolutely come from uh, aggressions or people that are toxic in our lives. But oddly enough, the stress comes at us in these small moments to people we love too. You know, there's all sorts of ways that that happens. And so kind of thinking about that and seeing where these small moments are impacting you, uh, both positively and negatively, I think is one of the strategies that the happier people in my research take. They're more intentional in the small moments and they're more willing to kind of adapt the negative and the positive uh, interactions. Although it seems like there might be tension with the don't sweat the small stuff, you know, these little moments along the way. So what would you advise we do when a small moment happens and you get to that moment and you think, oh, do I just let this one slide? 
Yeah, I have a huge idea on that. And it ties directly to what Chris was saying. As I went through these interviews, you know, so several hundred women and men focused, and I'm getting them from all the best organizations out there. They would all start great, right? Oh, life is good and this and that. And you get 15 minutes and it's, I can't keep up. I don't know how to do this. My world is falling apart, you know, and, and you start to get the real picture behind them. But then about one in 10 of these interviews would come in and it would be totally different. Right. And I started to call them my 10 percenters because they were living life more on their terms than other people's expectations. And the thing that consistently distinguished them, there's three or four things. But one of the most consistent things is that they had at least two and usually three groups outside of work that they engaged with. It could be athletic, religious, poetry, music, art. I mean, all sorts of walks of life. But it created a dimensionality in their life. That thing gave them an identity broader than work. And then importantly, it put them in a group of people that they would have never bumped into otherwise, right? And those people had different perspectives on what real issues were in life. And I find that the people that do that well, that maintain that, even as you get busy in your mid-30s and you start falling out of these groups, they're the ones that don't get caught up in the minutiae. Their whole identity doesn't rise or fall with the vagaries of work. So this is one of those things that I'll, I'll hold dear for the rest of my life. Like if you do one thing from listening to this, have at least two and usually three things you're doing with other people outside of work to create that dimensionality. Now, Christine, I know that you think that a sense of community is a way of overcoming the problems we've been hearing about, but how does that happen in the workplace? Well, I think it's similar to what Rob described, uh, but you know, you're doing it with people that are affiliated with your organization. There are lots of powerful examples of how workout groups that um, would work out, whether at a designated time or before or after, you know, that that just led to huge gains for not only physical well-being, but, you know, collaborations and everything that began to take root and meaningful relationships that actually happened and benefited the organization as well. I was struck to the power of community and how Sadly, you know, most of us, even pre-pandemic, were feeling more isolated and um, lonely, quite frankly. And so it was amazing to me how important a sense of community and a sense of belonging to some group is and how really, regardless of your power or status in the company, you know, people can start their own little groups around any activity, as Rob mentioned, you know, so that could grow out of you know, a book club, for example, or a mom's group, you know, and uh, there were companies that had a lot of different events that people would just say, hey, I want to teach a cooking class. Fantastic. You know, I want to teach an art class. That's great. So, I mean, it was just sometimes organic, but sometimes it was helped along by a leader that said, I'm going to give you the floor, you know, and so um, who wants to take what? And, and it's a way to come together and work is not the focus, it's something else that seemed to benefit their well-being and decrease stress and bring a real sense of like, who, who are my colleagues? And um, I, I get to know you in a way that people collaborated better after some of these gatherings. Absolutely. I mean, I find that it's really critical, this notion of being an energizer. The conversation was very heavily really on the negative side. And we've seen the same thing, but being a, the positive source of energy, uh, statistically in, in my work, you looking at networks, that turns out to be the biggest predictor of success from a network standpoint, whether we're predicting people that are happy or we're predicting high performers. And it's a really cool finding. It's suggesting that having a really good network ultimately is about engaging with others in ways that creates their enthusiasm. 
in the work around them. And getting off task like this is one of the first things we know that starts to build trust, build commonality, build things that allow us to get enthused in the presence of others, not wondering about their motives or other components like that. I, I see the same thing in different a different lens, but the same thing is what Chris was saying, right? What I see is when people allow collaborative overload to creep around them and they start to get into these red line states of having too much to do, one of the very first things that drops off is your ability to come into a situation in ways that creates others' energy. And what we see is that has a real impact on performance. People don't get fired immediately, but they slowly drift in ways that, you know, pulls them off the upwardly mobile path. But they're not engaging with others in ways that create scale, creates innovation, does other things like that for them. Just to add to Rob's comment there, you know, one of the nice things that we've also seen in the research in our networks is that there's a positive ripple effect to a lot of this. So, you know, energizers pass along those positive effects to others and lift others in ways that then we carry that forward in our next team meeting or our next, we bring it home with us, that kind of thing. So we've seen both with energy, but also with civility the idea that people are passing that forward. And so there's a almost like a multiplier effect, if you will, both inside organizations and outside it as well. And that's Professor Christine Porath and her book Mastering Community comes out next March. And we also were joined by Professor Rob Cross. His latest book is Collaboration Overload. You've been listening to This Working Life. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.